So my first pastor, when I was a brand new priest, um, he was from Brooklyn. He was raised in Brooklyn, and he, uh, he was very proud of that. He loved, he loved Brooklyn. He was grateful to have been uh, raised there. And he loved to tell stories um, about growing up when he was a kid. My parents uh, were exactly the same age as him. They were born the same year. Um, my mom is here, so I won't mention what year. Um, but they were both born, they were all born in the same year, uh, and my parents were from Brooklyn. So I really kind of loved hearing his stories, almost as much as he loved telling them, because um, I was just kind of curious. He was describing really very much the experience of my parents as well. He was a huge Brooklyn Dodger fan. So a lot of his stories revolved around the Dodgers and Ebbets Field. Remember he talked about when they left, went to LA, and he just never recovered from that. One story in particular I remember uh, maybe most, and it's a famous Dodger story, actually Dodger giant story. The shot heard around the war world, um, really considered one of the one of the great moments in sports history. It was October 3rd, 1951. The Dodgers are playing the Giants. They finished the season tied. They had the identical records, so they had to have this playoff, three-game playoff. Best out of three would go to the World Series. They were in game three of this three-game series. It was the bottom of the ninth. The Dodgers were up by two runs. Bobby Thompson, who was a third baseman and outfielder for the Giants, is at the plate. There's two runners on. The Dodgers bring in a, a pitcher. He wasn't a relief pitcher, but he brought it, they brought him in to relieve. Uh, I'm not sure who was on the mound, but... Um, the guy who came in was Ralph Branca. Bobby Thompson hits uh, a walk-off home run, a three-run homer, and that ends the game. Famous broadcast of it. You can hear the uh, announcer just screaming, the Giants won the pennant, the Giants won the pennant. That's all he keeps saying, because it was so not to be believed. And I remember my pastor kind of giving me, and I, I knew some of this already, but he kind of just gave even more detail to kind of what it was like back then. National League Baseball in New York, you had two New York teams, so you just had this crosstown rivalry. And that particular year, the Giants came from behind in like kind of a remarkable way. They, were, they won 37 of their last 44 games, ultimately tying the Dodgers. Anyway, this was heard by millions of people. In fact, even in uh, Korea, servicemen during the war were able to listen to it on armed forces radio. And it was never forgotten. Bobby Thompson, who was the guy who hit the home run, well, I mean, he was remembered forever for that. He, never, he didn't have a great major league career, but he was never forgotten for that moment. In fact, he told a story late in life 
Um, about 45 years after that home run, he gets a letter, and it was from a Marine veteran who was in Korea in 1951. And this is what he said. I was in a bunker in the front line with my buddy listening to the radio. It was contrary to orders, but that didn't stop us. He was a giant fanatic. He never made it home from Korea, and I promised him if I ever got back, I'd write and tell you about the happiest moment of his life. It's taken me this long to put my feelings into words. So on, my, on behalf of my buddy, thanks, Bobby. 45 years later. It says something about the power of sports, doesn't it? My pastor, I remember him telling me, and again, I, I kind of knew most of the details of that inning, but hearing him describe the moment when it happened, that was what was really the best part. Um, he told me where he was. He was, uh, he was 17 years old, and he said he was getting his hair cut. And he, I remember him saying for the life of him, he didn't know why he was getting his hair cut at that moment. But nobody was, no, it wasn't on TV, so everybody's listening to the radio. So he was listening to the radio in the barbershop. And he talked about the reaction. He was in there, and the two barbers, these two Italian-born barbers who were huge Dodger fans. And he said after the home run, there was just sort of like silence, like just disbelief, like how could this have happened? And then he said, they, the, these two guys just kind of came unglued. Um, they started screaming. And they started throwing things, you know, combs and stuff was being like tossed around the barbershop. One of the barbers just got up and left and he said he saw him out in front, like kicking a garbage can over, just screaming. The other guy went into the back room and he could just hear him cursing in Italian. And my pastor was in his in barber chair for this guy when this happened. So the guy never returned. He just stayed in the back rooms cursing and hating life in this moment. Eventually the guy outside came in and finished his haircut. But I remember my pastor talking about hating Ralph Branca, the guy who threw the pitch for years. He said even as an adult, and he knew it wasn't rational, it wasn't right, but he just couldn't stand him for what he allowed to happen. And then years later, he told me he read a book. It was about Jackie Robinson. And in the course of reading this book, he learned more about Ralph Branca. Ralph Branca was very close to Jackie Robinson. In fact, four years before, in 1947, when Robinson broke into the majors, members on the, the Dodger team passed around a petition which they were gonna send up to management saying they weren't gonna play on a team with a black guy. Like, it's kind of hard to imagine 50 whatever years later, but it's just, at least some of the Dodgers, they were, this petition thing was happening and Branca refused to sign it. On opening day in, in 47, uh, he famously, as the introductions were happening and um, 
Robinson was out, had been introduced. He came out and he walked, intentionally walked right over, kind of shoulder to shoulder, shoulder with him. 50 years later, like it was a very different story. You know, our, we were a different country. Major League Baseball was celebrating Jackie Robinson. 50 years before, everybody but Branch Rickey wanted him to disappear. In 1997, at the 50-year mark, they retired his number, number 42. We're gonna talk about an honor. So nobody in the major leagues could ever wear number 42. Like, what a tribute. Rachel Robinson, Jackie Robinson's widow, she talked at the 50th anniversary about uh, what it was like that season and how difficult it was and how terribly he was treated by people, fans in some cases, players in some cases. Today he's seen as a hero, but she said, you know what, in 1947, nobody was calling him a hero. And then she said this, Ralph Branca was good to my husband when it wasn't fashionable to be good to him. Ralph Branca told a story again, when, this is when he was in his later years, about uh, his older brother. That opening day when he stood next to Robinson, his older brother gave him grief about it. Not because he didn't think he should be supporting Robinson, he just thought it was dangerous. He wasn't sure what might happen. This is what the older brother said. What would have happened if some nut with a gun and bad aim had taken a shot at Robinson and hit you? Ralph Branca said, then I would have died a hero. So he was a class act, to say the least. Despite that one pitch in 1951. I remember my pastor telling me about all of that. And then how for so many years he defined this guy by one moment, one action, one pitch. Like it wasn't even a, a, a moral thing. It wasn't some sin he committed. It was a pitch. One pitch, one mistake, one loss. And that kind of defined, for so many, Ralph Branca's life and career. It's crazy, isn't it? Remember my pastor kind of like laughing at himself, like what the, was I thinking all those years, not liking this guy? And then I learned about who the guy really was. But I let one moment define him. But we do that. Or at least there's a temptation to do it. Somebody who's just hurt you in some way, you just kind of put them in, you put them in a box and you kind of condemn them forever. Like there's no parole, there's no possibility for, okay, maybe this was just a one crazy moment. Like we don't even want to entertain that. We just want them where we put them. I'm thinking to this gospel this morning, St. Thomas the Apostle. In some ways I think we do that to him. There's one moment he's remembered for. Questioning, doubting. You know, Thomas was a, a martyr. He lost his life in the name of Jesus. Nobody ever talks about that. He's not called St. Thomas the martyr. He's called St. Thomas the doubter. This poor guy gets this bum rap. 
this one moment, and here I think is maybe the crazy part, did he really even do anything wrong? We always sort of interpret the doubt as being some sort of a, you know, a weakness, a mistake, a dark moment, a bad pitch in the bottom of the ninth. I don't even think that's fair. He was questioning, like what's wrong with questioning? What's wrong with having doubts? Didn't seem to bother Jesus. When he finally is there, when Thomas is there, Jesus already knows that he's not believing him until he sees him, so he says, come on over here. He says, check out, the, check out the scars. Look at the hole in my side. He doesn't scream at him, he's not disgusted with him. He's not ashamed of him, he's just, hey, take a look. Now you don't need to doubt anymore. I think doubt very often can lead us to a greater truth. Maybe that's what led him to becoming a martyr. And then, and then this one little piece, it says, well, we know the beginning of the day, the beginning of this gospel, it was Easter Sunday night, and they're all there but him, but Thomas. Jesus shows up, and Thomas won't buy it, because he wasn't there. And then it says, now a week later, and he was there. And now he does believe. He was there, here's the point. He was still there, despite the doubt, despite the uncertainty, despite not, not maybe kind of questioning now, is he the one? He didn't bolt. He didn't doubt and then disappear. He remained present. I mean, that's a model for all of us in any kind of relationship that matters. Who doesn't have doubts at certain times? But what do we do in the midst of the doubt? Thomas didn't run, nor should we. And then maybe the final piece is, this moment became an occasion for us to, for God to reveal how God is. His mercy. It's all about mercy. It's all about second chances. I read this thing, it was a, uh, kinda like a little article or story that this priest had written about a, something that happened to him when he was a kid. He was in a terrible car accident, teenager. Serious, nobody died, but you know, the car was wrecked, people were hurt, it was a big deal. This is what he says, when I was a teenager, I was involved in a, an accident, which wasn't my fault, but what scared me more than anything was the prospect of telling my father what his reaction would be. As it turned out, I hadn't really known my father until that day. He heard about the accident before I told him, and he called me on the phone. I had already rehearsed what I was gonna say, but his first words were, are you all right? And I broke into tears. I couldn't even speak, and peace flooded my heart. Man, it must have been like that for these apostles, right? When he shows up, what's he keep saying to them? He keeps saying the same thing, he keeps saying peace. He says it a second time, he says it a third time. He keeps saying to these guys, it's okay. He doesn't make little of what they did, but he doesn't condemn them for what they did. Their fear, their guilt, their regret, the abandonment, the denial, the disappearing, Good Friday, the shame. Man, these guys had lots of reasons to be like, cowering when Jesus showed up, and they kind of were. But all he keeps saying is peace. 
Man, what's better than mercy? When they thought they couldn't love this guy anymore, they found another reason. There's this poem, I remember, well, I remember reading this poem, it was, it's kind of interesting, it was called The Dash, D-A-S-H. And it's a description of a person's tombstone. And on their tombstone, you got the date of their birth and the date of their death, and you got a dash in the middle. So the poem is about like how you live your life. This is part of it. The poet says, I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of birth and spoke the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time that they spent alive on earth. And now only those who love them know that, know what that little dash, what that little line is worth. So when your eulogy is being read with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you spent your dash? It's like, how do we want to be remembered? What do you want your dash to represent? It's gotta be about more than one moment, good or bad. Bobby Thompson was remembered positively forever. Well, he didn't have a great career, but people only remember the good. Sadly, the opposite for Ralph Branca. But it's just about more than a moment. You know, when Ralph Branca died, and uh, he died in 2016, he was 90. That same year, Muhammad Ali died. Arnold Palmer died. Gordie Howe, the great hockey player, died. As an athlete, Branca wasn't in their league, like by a long shot. Those guys were legends. They were Hall of Fame legends. Branca's not. When he died, his obituary was all about that game, that pitch, that loss. But his dash, man, so much more. Talk to his kids and their kids. So consider your dash and die somebody's hero.